Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real world data. So welcome to this special episode of CODA's podcast. My name is Mandy Kelly, and I'll be the host today. I'm delighted to be here with Carla Figali and Sesh Srinivasan from Deloitte, as well as my CODA colleague, Laura Fernandez. Welcome, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about our second post from our blog series by Deloitte and CODA on the Women in Health Innovation Platform, where we've been focusing on identifying fit-for-purpose databases within clinical oncology research. Um, So just want to ask everyone to introduce themselves, starting with Carla. Sure. Thanks, Fanny. Excited to be here. I'm Carla Figali. I'm a senior manager at Deloitte, part of our Converge Health business. I focus on helping a lot of clients use data and analytics to more efficiently do drug development across the entire value chain. And I do a lot of work in real world evidence space, particularly around the strategy for data access, the technology around all of that organizational structure, everything in between. And prior, I used to run clinical trials and run a molecular diagnostics lab with the U.S. military. Nice to be here. Thanks. Sesh, I'll pass it to you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Sesh Srinivasan. I lead product strategy for developing real-world data solutions within Deloitte. So we have developed a platform which is adopted by multiple top 10 pharma. And I have a data science background. So I've kind of covered the gamut when it comes to analytics related to real-world data, clinical data, and also genomics and uh, personalized medicine data. So prior to joining Deloitte, I've been working with the U.S. Army as a data scientist focused on personalized genomics project. So very, very excited to be part of this discussion today. Thank you. And Laura? Hi. Hi, everyone. My name is Laura Fernandez. I'm the Senior Statistical Director here at COTA, where we specialize in abstracting and curating electronic health records, especially in the space of oncology. I oversee all functions related to analysis, design of the trial, and then reporting the analysis in publications. I previously worked at the FDA as a statistical reviewer, so I have all this experience in designing and analysis of clinical trial data. And I'm very much interested in trying to see how we can fill our information gaps in clinical trials using real-world data. So happy to be part of this conversation today. Thank you. And I'll round this out. My name is Mandy Kelly. I'm an epidemiologist by training, and I've been in the RWE space for just about five years now. I'm a director on our life sciences team here at CODA, and so I work with our pharma clients to help them use our data correctly and making sure that our data is fit for purpose for the projects that they're they're licensing our data for. And I've spent years analyzing real-world data sources and have spent much of my career helping clients choose, you know, what what is the right data set for their research question? How can we more efficiently and correctly use use the data that, that has been licensed? So really happy to have everyone here today, and let's jump right in. So, Sash, I want to start with you. And if, if you can tell us why should people care about fit-for-purpose data sets and what does it mean to have a fit-for-purpose database? Yeah, absolutely. So, very quickly, real-world data are data sets that are collected outside the clinical trial environment through, you know, routine healthcare use. And they've come along with, with the real-world data, right? It's being adopted by various players, 
right? And it's being also considered for regulatory grade decision. So, you know, if we talk about the different players, we've got pharma, regulatory bodies like FDA, we've got, uh, you know, your providers, we've got patients. That's it's an entire ecosystem of stakeholders who are involved in this. So what do we mean by, you know, real world data increasingly being used for regulatory decision making, right? So instead of just supplementing results from clinical trial data, now real world data can support clinical efficiency and everything from labeling changes, which is very, very important. So you can easily bring um, your therapy to market faster. And core to this, the minute you start talking about regulatory decision making, core to this is having fit for purpose data now, which is really important to support clinical decision making. So, and why should pharma care is for all the reasons that I just talked about, right? Being independent from just relying on clinical trial, having other sources of information that can be used for regulatory decision making, which is a huge value for pharma if you think about it, right? Everything from, like I talked about, supporting label changes, designing clinical trials, all the way through the um, showing clinical effectiveness. So, and again, we just talked about pharma alone. When it comes to regulators, regulators like FDA, for example, have been very thorough in providing a lot of guidance. And this started, you know, way back in 2018. They've been coming up with guidance on, you know, how to define fit for purpose data. And not just in the U.S., right? Even in Europe, if you see European uh, Medicines Agency, EMA, they've come out with this new initiative, which is more focused on making uh, real-world evidence part of the clinical decision-making. So I think we've covered two stakeholders here, and there are more stakeholders in this ecosystem. And uh, I'm going to pass it to Carla to talk about the other players in this ecosystem. Yeah. So I mean, so there, there's a lot of variety of different players in this ecosystem. I mean, there's also going to be, you know, in clinical trials, running clinical trials, making sure that you actually have fit for purpose data, you're collecting, um, you know, accurate data as well. And so while that's used for primary, not considered real data, it's the secondary use of that clinical trial data and making sure that's complete and reliable. So that way it can be used for additional purposes to better understand that clinical domain. It's important for healthcare providers in diagnosing different treatments and making sure that they understand the complete patient record, understanding what decisions they're trying to make out of, out of these different data sets, understanding also like quality improvement in healthcare and how can you actually improve different standards of care and making sure the data sets are complete around there. And then, of course, around like research and analysis, so making sure that healthcare research also has fit for purpose data and making sure that you're able to actually address the different questions at hand in a complete and reliable manner. I mean, it's very, it's very important when you're thinking about these data sets that you know what your intended output is, what your goals are with the data, and making sure that you don't have gaps in the data, or if you have gaps in the data, that you're really understanding how that's going to bias your analysis. So that way you can make a better informed decision and account for those biases as opposed to being too dependent on the actual data source itself. Yeah, I think you made a really great point that the context really matters and which, where is the question coming from? What's important in answering that question? And so, Laura, I want to pass this over to you. And when we're selecting a fit-for-purpose data set, this context matters. Is it for a regulatory decision? Is it for internal decision-making? So I'm wondering if you can talk to us about some of the trade-offs if we're looking at a regulatory setting versus maybe market research or other types of situations like that. 
Yes, you're totally on point, you know, depending upon your research question and where you're going to submit the evidence for your research, your, the kind of data you use matters. So in the case of, say, a regulatory setting uh, at the FDA, for example, when drugs are approved, they have to meet a certain evidentiary standard for safety and effectiveness. And these standards for evidence that are required are a bit more stringent. Why, say, for example, market research might not be held to the same standards and they could be exploratory or hypothesis generating in nature. So taking the approval process of a drug into consideration, one of the key factors when, when we consider choosing a real-world data source would be, is the data that is collected, is it complete? And does it have all the prognostic factors that we plan to use to match, for example, the patients in a clinical trial to those in the real-world data source? So you need to have this complete collection of not just the prognostic factors, but in the end, even the outcomes, how are they measured? Are they measured in the same way as you would measure in a clinical trial? For example, what you would see is some of the prognostic factors in a clinical trial that determine how patients might experience outcomes are, say, for example, fitness level or your performance status or what were the prior drugs that they were exposed to. So if you're planning to use a real-world data source, you need to make sure that you have these two prognostic factors captured in your source. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult to come up with the evidence that you need to meet the standards that a regulatory agency would be looking out for. Yeah, thank you for that. And there's some really interesting pieces that we need to make sure that the data has to make sure that it is fit for purpose. And so I think some of the key words that we use to describe that is that the data is complete, timely, and then also relevant to answer a particular research question, while also having very clearly defined variables like the exposures, and the outcomes of interest. Um, Sesh, can you elaborate on, you know, kind of the real world application of what, what that actually means when we're looking at a data set? Yeah, absolutely. So I think like Laura, Laura pointed out, it all starts with defining um, the right research question, right? Let's take an example. I think uh, examples are always fun. And then we can talk about what defines a fit for purpose data there. So let, let's say we have an example of a COVID um, study, right? We're running a real world study to understand effects of a treatment, endosphere, or any other FDA approved drug on reducing the risk of um, inpatient mortality, let's say, right? If, if that's a real-world study you want to run, there are obviously like you have your outcomes, which is inpatient mortality, and you have your exposure, which is, you know, COVID patients treated on a, a, the set drug, right? And then there are several things that goes into picture, yeah, depending on your inclusion-exclusion criteria. How do you want to define these COVID patients, right? Do, do you want to de define them by disease severity, right? And if so, what are the disease severity? Is it you know, mechanical ventilator or, um, you know, so all of that kind of goes into, into play, right? And also your covariates and confounders, because you clearly have a hypothesis that you probably want to go back a year before when they started, when they were diagnosed with COVID or when they, they were treated with the drug. So all of these pieces go into it. And this is where you would define that research question. And we're, we're going to talking about it in detail as well. Once you have all of this in place, now you come to identifying your data. And this is where the fit for purpose data comes into play, right? When you are defining, you want to make sure that the data is relevant, complete, and timely, right? What do we mean by relevant? We want to ask questions like, 
do we have the required sample? Do we have the right variables? Is there data that exists for the right population, right? The, the COVID uh, population that we just talked about. And are we cutting them based on the disease severity? Do we have the right exposures? Do we have the outcomes, right? We want to make sure all of that. And on top of everything, maybe not specifically for COVID, but for rare diseases, you want to make sure, is there enough sample to power my study, right? And we can take this example as well. Any special purpose things that you want to do, for example, to define the disease severity, maybe you're calculating, you're, you're running your own algorithm. So do we have the right data in there for you to kind of cut the, the cohorts into these different pieces? So you want to make sure all of this that exists in place, right? And that's where relevant comes in. Next thing you want to make sure is, is the data complete, right? Again, if we go by this same example, do I have enough complete representation of mortality, the outcome that I'm looking for? Do I have enough information for my covariates to, to run my analysis, right? So you want to make sure that it covers all aspects of the research question that you're asking. And then the third piece is timely, right? Is the data timely? What do we mean by that? Again, is it recent enough, right? Is it relevant to this research question and not outdated? Again, taking that same COVID example, right? You, you know, you have a start date and you probably have to make sure that enough data is captured for you. So you want to make sure of all of these three things. And again, the reason I gave you an example is because everything is context dependent. I think we already talked about it. It is in the context of that well-defined research question. And we're going to go into all of these details. Yeah, I think the examples are definitely powerful because every single situation will be different. That's the reason why we have various needs for different types of data sets. Again, depending on the context, the selection can really vary. So, Laura, I'm wondering if I can pass it over to you for another example here of, you know, something from your experience around a time where you've needed to perform one of these assessments and what, are, what were the considerations there? The factors that Shesh mentioned are something that I'm going to dwell a little bit more on, you know, whether it's relevant and whether it's complete. And so in the world of clinical trials, having a well-defined research question is key, even conducting the clinical trial. So before you conduct your clinical trial, for example, a relevant uh, research question would be, how would you characterize, say, the effects of a particular intervention? Say, in the world of uh, oncology, this could mean something like, does a particular therapy cause the tumor to shrink and or disappear? And how do you measure this tumor shrinkage? And that would be measured by a well-defined method. And this effect that we measure, is it better than what we see in the current standard of care? So, so that is a well-defined question. Is, does this therapy work? And if it works, how much better is it than what we see in our current standard of care? So in this particular case, to measure the tumor shrinkage, we would have different criteria. In solid tumors, you have the resist criteria. Then depending upon your hematology, in the world of hematology for multiple myeloma, you have the IMWG criteria or the Chesson's criteria for, say, lymphoma. So you have different criteria that determine whether the tumor has shrunk or what kind of response you have, a depth of response. And so once you establish what is your endpoint, what is your outcome, you now want to make sure that these essential parameters are captured in your clinical trial and they are also captured in your comparator that you are trying to use from a real-world data source. So your real-world data source has to have these tumor measurements. And so since we are looking at a change, so you need a tumor measurement before the therapy was given 
and the new response after the therapy was given after say a predetermined amount of time so in this particular instance what would completeness look like in this particular instance a real world data source that is complete would be something that has your tumor measurement like the way i said at baseline or say at the time of diagnosis either we are a tumor scan or we are some other objective measure that is also used in a clinical trial and then you need to have the exposure when the exposure was started and exposure in this particular instance would be when the treatment was started what kind of treatment was given and how long did the treatment last and so at the end of your exposure duration you then need to know what was the new tumor measurement so that you can do a comparison to before and after your intervention so a complete data source in this particular instance would be having this information on the tumor having the information on the treatment and also having information on other prognostic factors that i had mentioned earlier so if you know that the performance status matters if you know that the smoking status matters whether smokers tend to do worse or smokers tend to do better your weight and height your bmi so all these other prognostic factors if they play a role in this natural history of the disease then you need to have information on those factors too and so a complete source in this particular instance would be that captures all these important information about this patient in your real world data source so so going on to this you know we mentioned that a real world data source is something that is created in an uncontrolled environment right and so it's very often possible that we might have to do certain trade offs in the use of this particular real world data source and so i want to ask mandy you know so so what do you think would be like some of the trade offs that we might have to consider when we are say considering whether real world data source a is better than say real world data source b you know in trying to choose between two different sources what kind of trade offs should we you know look out for yeah and it's a great question because in a perfect world of course we would have all of these different variables measured but that's just not the nature of real treatment <laughs> that's happening and so I think once we have our well-defined research question it's really prioritizing what are the most important variables for us to have and as we start to kind of lower down in priority what are some of the trade-offs and considerations we can make there so that our data set meets the majority of our criteria with a few key variables that are very accurately captured and so in thinking about these trade-offs you know we can start to use proxies for certain information if it may be missing from the from the real-world data set So an example of this is molecular markers. There's often data sets out there that have some molecular marker information or maybe it's missing altogether, but maybe some of those other key variables are really well represented. And so we might want to choose that data set, but then we have to think about how can we address this molecular marker information. So in a case where we might want to know the status of a particular marker for all patients, but it's maybe incomplete, a proxy for that may be looking for patients that are receiving medications that are indicated for that particular molecular marker this of course may introduce some biases there or limitations that we're only going to be capturing patients that are treated for that molecular marker so if there's patients that are positive but maybe haven't yet received treatment we could be missing those patients or again if their status was just entirely missing you know we we're, we're going to 
not to capture those patients. But these are the trade-offs that we can start to consider. Again, if all of those other key variables are represented, this might be the best data set, but we just need to make sure that we're accurately capturing that and representing that within our results and the interpretations of how can we generalize the information that we're that we're saying and, you know, also fueling future research questions and data sets where we might have more more complete molecular marker information. So that's just one example of some of these trade-offs that we can think through. And Laura, you brought up a really great point about the resist criteria. And I don't have a great solution for this because this comes up all the time. You know, it's always used in clinical trials, but it's not something that's routinely routinely captured in real-world care. So I'm curious if anyone here has any ideas or solutions or examples of times they've had to address the resist criteria in the past using real-world data. I'll turn it over to whoever, <laughs> if anyone has any, ex- any experience here. <laughs> in looking at both the worlds, you know, of the clinical trials and of the real-world setting, what I've come to realize is that the resist criteria is something that was, in my opinion, created as an objective measure of, you know, of an intervention. And so a complete response is determined by saying that the tumor has completely disappeared. So there's been a 100% shrinkage of tumor. And so then between 0 and 100, then you can have what's known as a partial response. And a partial response is set off to be a 33% reduction in your tumor dimension, you know. So, so if your tumor reduces by 33%, it's called a partial response. So as a statistician, what we typically struggle with is this binary line, you know, so what does it mean to have a 34% reduction? Or what does it mean to have a 35% reduction? If only 33 is a partial response, or and if I have slightly higher, you know, my reduction was not 33, but say it was only 35%. So in a real world setting, what I've realized is, a doctor might not be so critical that, oh, you have a 35% reduction, so I cannot consider you to be a partial responder. You know, your physician, your treating physician is more concerned about how you're feeling. Are you tolerating the therapy? And from a month ago, you look in a much better shape. You know, you are now able to do maybe your daily function. And I see that you're responding to therapy. So that is how your physician evaluates in a real world setting. And even though As per the resist criteria, you're not a partial responder. Your physician might consider you to be a responder at, you know, your first month scan. And so you might be allowed to continue on therapy. And maybe at the subsequent visit, maybe your tumor shrinks even more, right? And so this correlation as such between what happens in the real world and in the correlation, meaning uh, the focus that we put on resist criteria in the real world setting, I think is not the same. And uh, I think a physician looks at a far more complete picture and not just one element of your treatment journey. And I think this is something that we kind of struggle with when we try to use real-world data to to fill in this information gaps in a clinical trial. Right. And of course, tying back to why the research question matters and what are we trying to to measure. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of push for patient-reported outcomes to come into play here as well. And so that's been something that's been a bit of a struggle of actually understanding how to bring that in and compare it with clinical trial data or very specific fit for purpose data because it can be so subjective. But if you can bring in the patient reported outcome data with the real world clinical data and even better bring in some genomic data as well, you're getting a much more complete picture on what's happening in that patient life to better understand the holistic approach to care, which only improves 
the fit for purpose data to answer your research question. Absolutely. I was kind of going to go in another <laughs> parallel thread, but same thing, right? Like, Laura, you brought up an interesting point around Mandy and Laura, both of you, about, you know, molecular data not being well represented in real world data set. And that's a real struggle, especially mm -hmm. as cancer researchers. You would know that, right? Where, you know, a specific medication is, you know, approved for a specific biomarker. You know, how are you going to do the internal analysis if, if you are using proxies like that, which, which is the way we do it right now. But how can we make that better? And one other thing, again, outside of the oncology realm, SDOH, social determinants of health, kind of plays the picture. It, I think it does in every TA, but Certain examples, like we were working on this study on NASH, which is non-alcoholic stadiohepatitis, where SDOH plays a big part than, you know, than other indications. So lack of those variables in the study, you know, can kind of, again, bias your results a little bit, which is why it is very, very important, like what we're talking about is to clearly document all the limitations and the trade-offs and, you know, what other proxies you were using, everything. Think about this well ahead before you kind of start, you know, picking a data and, and almost like not end up in a cherry picking situation, right? Where you're picking like the best of this and best of that. So a very thoughtfully designed research question and documentation becomes really, really important. Just some few things that came to mind as you were describing oncology area so eloquently because it's Having done re genomic research there, I know it is it is one of the trickiest things to work with. Yeah, and I think the biases and limitations are they're critical to making sure that we're performing good research and that we're really paying attention to the results that we're generating and how we should be interpreting them. And so, Laura, I'm wondering if you can touch on what are some of the limitations and biases. We we did mention a few of those, but how can we how can we address them? And what are the are there any solutions there? When we talk about biases in uh, selecting a data source, one of these recent case examples comes to my mind. Recently, uh, in October of last year, there was this drug application for uh, CNS mm -hmm. uh, that was taken to ODAC, that's an Oncology Drugs Advisory Committee. And this particular application looked at patients who had leptomeningeal metastatic disease from neuroblastoma that were treated in a clinical trial with an intervention. And so it was a single arm trial. And so what they did was they wanted to characterize how good their treatment effect was in terms of overall survival as compared to an external control. And so they looked at a similar set of patients that were treated in their clinical trial to those in an external control. And so their external control or external source of information came from this registry information. And so the whole ODAC discussion was uh, about how relevant was this external source to this clinical trial and did it actually set out to answer the question that they wanted to answer and show that this drug is actually better than what we have as a standard of care. And so the main point actually that came out from this ODAC discussion, and I would encourage you know our, our listeners to go look into the details of how the whole committee struggled to put this evidence into context was the struggle with looking at patient selection. This uh, clinical trial was conducted in the U.S. and this registry information that they used was based outside of U.S. in Germany. And so that was one of the key differences in the two data sources. The other difference that they looked at was the way how information was measured on certain prognostic factors. 
they were the patients who were in the clinical trial were exposed to certain therapies and the same kind of therapy was not used in the patients who were in the registry you know and so this was causing a major imbalance in how the patients were selected in this clinical trial and then in the end the whole discussion was also about other methods that they used that also caused biases in the analysis and uh, the committee actually said that the way this whole application was put together was not in the best like it did not look favorably for the application and so they voted no to saying that the evidence was enough you know to approve this drug so so these are this is a very typical good case example and something that they could have done was picking up the right data source looking at a data source that had overall survival information that was collected in a similar way to how it was for the patients in the clinical trial making sure that the exposure to these prior uh, therapies was similar to the patients in the real world source and the clinical trial so so these are the same elements that we've been talking about today you know how how similar is your patient population and how are you collecting that information to show that your patient population is similar to the source that you're comparing to. It's a great example. And I think, you know, as the world of RWE and RWD is expanding, there's also a lot of education around the different types of data sets we're working with and explaining and justifying why certain selections and decisions were made um, to go with one one data source or over another or why a particular method was used. And I think careful thought and explanation is absolutely necessary and explaining how you know why why certain decisions were were made that's that's so true you know because because at the end of the day what we're trying to do say in a clinical trial is that we do not want to attribute the effect of a drug to something that is not actually caused by the drug you know it might be just the natural history of the disease or it might be something spurious that patients experience or it could be something that is totally not related to the drug you know it could be some other concomitant medication or it could be some other intervention that is not captured you know and so we want to make sure that when we say that the drug is working that it is attributed to the effect of the drug and not something else that is not controlled for or measured in your real world data source absolutely and so as this is becoming more more common sesh i want to direct to you what are the industry trends that we're seeing here around real world data and making sure we're selecting data sets that are fit for purpose and what types of innovations might we expect to kind of help with these issues that we're seeing yeah the one thing that comes to mind at least to me it looks a bit bold. I think we talked about it a little bit earlier because for certain indications like oncology, genomic data becomes really important. For certain other disease indication, like the NASH one I was telling you, SDOH becomes really important. And overall, as we are tackling the problem of diversity in medical research, race and ethnicity becomes really, really important. And as researchers, you all know, not every real world does that captures that. Race, ethnicity is missing, right? Which is a huge problem. So the one effort, like I said, it's a bold play in this area is data vendors trying to come together and come up with a more complete, a more multimodal data, meaning combining clinical information, combining demographics information, genomics information even PROs that Carla was talking about. 
and uh, SDOH, right? Can we combine all of this and, Laura, things you were talking about earlier, you have all of this real-world data set, you have your clinical clinical studies, right? So can we combine them together? It's a very, very bold idea. It's, it's the concept of tokenization many of you may have heard, right? So through that technology called tokenization, if you are, you know, if a sponsor is running a clinical trial, after the trial ends, instead of just releasing the patient into the wild and not knowing anything about them, which is where all the problems come into picture, can we tokenize them, right? So if you know, patient A is being enrolled in a trial, let's tokenize patient A, meaning in an anonymized fashion, capture all their information. And once the trial ends, they go about their life and uh, they are still generating data, right? Through real-world data sources, you know, going, getting regular care, you know, using a mobile phone, let's say, for example. So can we kind of bridge the gap and still continue collecting information about patient A in a real-world setting? Imagine how powerful that can be and imagine like how much we'll have to, to do our research. Everything we talked about right now. Again, it's, it's, not, it's not going to eliminate all the problems. There will still be problems. In fact, probably some of it will be a bit more about like how do you handle for bias and things like that. But still, at least you have the built of information. Then it comes to carefully crafting the research question, making sure you have the right assumptions in place, make sure you put in the right controls. And Laura, you talked quite a bit about that. So kind of have all of that. Then it comes to thoughtful and good science, but at least the data problem is eliminated, which is still a big deal right now. So that's the one, I would say, bold direction that at least the industry wants to head towards. Fathers, I'm I'm very curious to see what others uh, think about this as well. It's very exciting. I totally agree with you, Shesh. The whole idea of tokenization, I think it's very key because right now, like the way you said, you know, uh, a patient participates in a clinical trial and then we don't know what happens to the patient uh, further on, you know. So in the in the world of oncology, it's uh, we, we determine uh, how refractory a patient is based on how many prior lines of therapy a patient has, you know. You go on from first line to a second line to third line. And so maybe your second line therapy was in a clinical trial, but then when you come into the real world setting, we don't know when you're treated in a hospital and that data is now collected in an EHR, whether it was the same patient who was treated in this clinical trial or if it's a different patient, you know. So it takes from a stats point of view, it takes uh, the issue of double counting the same patient in two different data sources, you know. You count for the same patient only once and it contributes only once to that information. So I see a lot of benefits in doing this tokenization and I feel like the industry needs to step up so that we have a proper efficient way of using this information like the way I said not double counting not double dipping into the same patient more than once yeah which is a big problem like the double counting thing I know we didn't go into details about that but Oh my goodness, that is such a huge issue. And again, adding on that, so I do agree, like tokenization, there's a lot of traction happening in the market, but there's a lot of interest. But I think with tokenization as well, we have to do education to to the patient, to the customer of the healthcare system as to what the value is and how their data is intended to be used. Because a lot of people don't understand that, you know, it's completely like de-identified data. And while tokenization can happen because of some, you know, identifiable information, the actual use and output of that is instrumental to developing these new and groundbreaking 
therapies that would otherwise not be feasible because a clinical trial tends to run two point in time or a registry tends to collect two specific data elements that then maybe are no longer as critical as you know the registry continues for several years. Um, and so I think education is a big piece in here that we have to, to consider. And there's several companies that are coming up that are incent- trying to incentivize patients to actually consent in to sharing their data for purposeful studies. And I think that will only continue, but as long as they understand some of the controls around their data as well. I like this. We started talking about patients at the beginning, even though this conversation is, is on fit for purpose data. We started <laughs> talking about how it can help patients and we're kind of rounding it out and ending on the same note because it, that's all that matters, right? And right. That, that's the purpose. It's the purpose is to get better medications, better therapies to improve patient lives. Absolutely. Well, this has been a great discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me today. We're going to have a future blog post as well. It's going to be addressing how we can think about including real-world data within regulatory submissions in the regulatory setting. So it should be a great discussion. So keep an eye out for that. But thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real-world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.